Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Today we take a look at the new relationship that is emerging between the states and the federal government, uh, the growth in state authority perhaps, uh, and maybe the diminution in federal leadership. Then we move to the future of work and what kind of work we will have after the virus has been beaten back and we are back or in a place now referred to as the new normal. Uh, we're going to look at the gig economy, self-employed people and why they need some structure and also at whether we need a federal construction program modeled on the Works Progress Administration, which did so much to build the infrastructure in the 1930s and early 1940s, and which put 8 million Americans out of a population of about 125 million to work. That is all coming up. But first to the states, and in particular, I have with me Clint Vince. Clinton Vince is his full name, but he goes by Clint. Welcome to the broadcast, Clint. Thank you, Llewellyn. It's great to see you. Well, it's very nice to have you. Uh, you've been looking at states and what they're doing. Wasn't it uh, Justice Brandeis who said the states were a laboratory for democracy? They're more than that now, aren't they, Clint? I think that's true. I think so much that's going on now is happening at the subnational level. States and cities, counties, communities, uh, they're really on the front line for this pandemic. And um, while the um, leadership at the federal government has sometimes been um, uh, hard to reconcile uh, with science, the, uh, a lot of the states have really moved out and uh, are doing a great job. Does this reflect a new uh, strength in the states or does it reflect some sort of federal disintegration? Well, it's probably, you know, there's gridlock at the federal level, uh, tremendous partisanship. At the state level, the, the state uh, governors can act with a little bit more uh, autonomy and swiftness. And um, so the states, not all states have been consistent, but the ones that are uh, really um, have at the epicenter, like New York, California, uh, the Maryland governor, uh, Hogan, they're all getting great reviews, not just from within their states, but really across the country. What's, what's happened at the federal level and even at the international level, someone described as a global divorce. You know, countries have shut down their borders and um, everyone's looking out for their own country and their own well-being. How does this affect you? You are an international lawyer. Uh, you're the chair of the energy practice at Denton's, the world's largest law firm and you're the co-chair of the global energy sector, but also you have a think tank within Denton's looking at cities and future cities, also sometimes known informally as smart cities. Your studies into cities, how does this affect your attitude and your appreciation of states and indeed of local authority? Well, I think, uh, 
states and cities and connected communities are more important than ever. We, we actually added a pillar to our think tank uh, for examining the type of infrastructure and crisis response you need for pandemics and crises. Um, we have about 400 thought leaders in the think tank and our law firms in about 80 countries. So we've been doing a lot of town halls and looking at progress and, and response all over the globe. Um, some um, regions like uh, China, for example, Asia, are farther along in their experience than we are in the US. So Asia is further ahead in terms of the pandemic. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, their experiences are farther along. China, Singapore, um, and we're learning from them. For example, Singapore did just about everything right initially. They had uh, lockdown, they had um, uh, advanced testing and very advanced tracing uh, with good technology, but they're now experiencing maybe their third or fourth wave of the infection. And I think we can probably expect similar um, results here in the United States. Um, and that's not a very encouraging outlook. We, we're talking about the states, but then you don't see any uniformity in the states. The state of Georgia in particular comes to mind, where the governor has refused to have isolation, have lockdowns, but where the cities have risen up, as it were, at least verbally, against the governor, uh, Atlanta, uh, mayor there has been quite vociferous in demanding that there be social separation and that many businesses do not open because the pandemic has not reached its peak. The mayors have been impressive, Llewellyn, Atlanta, uh, our mayor in Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, very impressive. Um, and a lot of the governors, uh, Governor Hogan of Maryland, head of the uh, Governor's Association, has been impressive, and uh, but a great leader. Uh, Cuomo's uh, um, press conferences have been very well received. The, the New York. Uh, uh, it seems to me that we are seeing a whole new generation of leaders emerge, emerge in the cities, emerge in the states, that makes the old political leadership look a little tired, a little out of touch, a little not ready for the times. I would agree with you. The uh, cities and states and communities are on the front lines, and they there has been some very good responsiveness. You know, we had a... Um, we had a board meeting of the World Resources Institute recently, and we concluded that it was essential very quickly to focus on human health, environmental health, and economic health, but to try to integrate that. And I think with 10 to 20 million, uh, trillion in stimulus funds coming uh, into the globe, you're going to see a lot of innovation at the state and city level. What are we going to see at the individual level? Are we going to see more self-employed people? Are we going to see whole tranches of traditional employment evaporate? I would think so. 
no one knows exactly how long the uh, pandemic will last and the economic crisis associated with it, but you'll in all likelihood see much more virtual uh, participation. Um, the pandemic has given us kind of a master class in uh, conservation and energy efficiency. I think you'll see more of that post-pandemic. Because Denton's, your law firm, is international and because you are in touch with lawyers all over the world frequently, uh, what are the commonalities? What, are the, what is emerging? What are the threads that suggest there are common paths to a solution to the present crisis and to what will follow it? What's interesting with our law firm and with people in our think tank is that while the um, globalized leadership are divorced at the moment, the, uh, the leaders in our firm are very interested in sharing best practices and explaining uh, very candidly what's working, what's not working, uh, what the surprises are and what some of the challenges are. It's been a very free flow of important information. What information are you getting about people at the bottom? There's a lot of concern in the global press, less so I think in the American press, with what happens to the people in South America, in Africa, where they're simply, as the, the, the virus increases, they haven't reached anything near like their peak of infection yet. Uh, a lot of concern for what the impact will be in parts of the world where there is no infrastructure to deal with this. And should the rest of the world, the advanced world, the first world, have a concerted approach to the third world, which is what I'm talking about? I think you raise a, a terribly important issue. The Southern Hemisphere is going to suffer tremendously. Our, our uh, offices in Africa and in uh, South America are very, very concerned. Um, I think that um, for the reasons that you've just outlined, and I think we do have a responsibility for the developed world to focus on this and assist with the needed infrastructure. First and foremost, of course, we need to develop uh, 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 anti-viral remedies and we haven't had much luck yet and it's going to take probably two years before we get an antidote. Uh, this is a long time to wait. It's also a long time for economies to be in limbo, uh, particularly the third world, which depends on selling the first world commodities. It's a pretty grim outlook. I think it's, uh, it is a grim outlook. We, I was just listening to Dr. Fauci sort of the uh, national hero describing uh, this morning that uh, you know vaccines are probably a year to a year and a half away at the earliest and then they uh, need to be brought up to scale. So your estimate of two years is, is seems realistic at least at the moment. Thank you so much for coming on the broadcast. We go now to Rhode Island and to Jared Hazelton, who is an analyst or has been looking at the gig economy. He has fascinating views on employment and the future of the economy. I think myself 
that he's probably right and I want him to share those views with you. He is a graduate of the University of Chicago uh, with advanced degrees. Normally, the University of Chicago is taken to turn out very conservative economists and thinkers. Uh, Jared, that's not really true of you, is it? Uh, I lie somewhat more to the left than the average U Chicago economist, I would say, uh, but not vastly to the left. Uh, the gig economy. Uh, yeah. What is the future? I mean, it seems to me that we have a problem. We have more and more people, and we'll have many, many more people self-employed, doing everything from making websites to raking leaves to uh, building houses, but without the formal structure of corporations. Indeed, many of those leaving universities nowadays uh, don't even think about getting a job. They may be videographers, they may be all kinds of things that you can do on your own, that you can hire out your time and your labor, but you miss social security, you miss any kind of workers' compensation, and of course, you're not entitled, because you're not in the social security system, to unemployment insurance. What do we do about it? That's correct. And as you mentioned, the, the number is growing. In 2017, we had about 55 million, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and that's estimated to be about 75 million now. Uh, the difficulty there is estimating how many are actually in the system, either through a spouse or a guardian, or, you know, this isn't their first job. They might have W-2 income elsewhere. Uh, however, with the growing share of gig economy workers coming into our economy, it's certainly going to be an issue for the future, um, having them insured under healthcare programs, uh, having them in the social security network, as you said, so that they can get their benefits. And most importantly, as we're seeing now, how can they collect unemployment? Uh, currently, the self-employed unemployment situation is pretty dire. Jared, it's very difficult when people are self-employed. Some of them are at the top. Some of them get very high, you know, for example, people with computer specialties. Uh, and others are quite low down the scale, offering not much more than menial labor. But nonetheless, outside of conventional formal employment, uh, how do we sweep these people together to make sure that they're treated the same way as employed people are? Uh, there are a couple ways to do that. One, it could be a state-by-state -state case. Um, you know, that's... Uh, Ultimately, not the best, probably, because it would really take a, a more federal level top-down approach to this, just because of the vast sums of people and the, the varying needs by state. Um, so I, I guess that would kind of institute a, a more formal U.S. healthcare system um, that goes a little bit deeper than, than the one we currently have, and extending Social Security benefits to those that are not just W-2 workers. Well, the secret of Social Security, of course, is payroll and the ability to deduct at the point of pay. Uh, gig workers pay taxes, normal taxes. Uh, they have to file an annual return, often a problem because they haven't accumulated a reserve during the year, but uh, they don't pay Social Security or unemployment tax at the time of taxation, which is the federal and state tax normally due on April 15th. 
can we start repairing this there, or is there something much more dramatic and such much more creative that is needed? Well, I think it may get easier to actually repair it at the point of payroll, as you've recommended, um, mostly because as we go into the, the future, we're going to see more and more um, digital transactions, not necessarily digital currency, but a digital transaction, either through an app or through some other sort of point of purchase that's online. And at that point, it may be possible to implement the tax deductions or, you know, to accumulate some sort of a, a pay throughout a week and then disperse it to the gig worker at the end of a week, minus the deductions, which is what a, a normal W-2 would be like. Uh, that may be more easily able to institute than a, a massive federal overhaul of the program. Remember, people have not been very good at putting their uh, nannies, the old nanny trap, have not been very good at paying the benefits for their nannies or even to admit that their nannies are employed uh, and have paid them in cash and, until they wanted a federal job or a political job and oops, uh, <laughs> this becomes a big problem. Uh, and we have that across the board with gig employees, because nannies are gig employees, are they not? Yeah, that would be correct, unless you're in one of the official au pair systems. Yeah, nanny would be, uh, as they call it, an under-the-table gig worker, um, probably counted in that 75 million worker figure today, um, alongside your Uber driver who you know may get more formally counted because they're using an app for a transaction. But... Um, it does seem yep. to me that rideshare drivers would be a good place to begin because there's a certain Absolutely. formality. Uh, but many of them drive for the two largest companies, whoever, if they can get a call on, on one Uber or if they get one on Lyft, the other, and they will take that call. So that it's a bit unfair to force those companies to treat them as employees when they are in a certain context, self-employed. But it's an ideal point to start worrying about how those drivers who are big employees and may work a few hours a week or may work a horrendously long week, uh, it is a good point to start looking at the gig employee, it would seem to me. Absolutely, uh, mostly because the data is actually there, it exists and it's relatively clean. Um, and that's what's missing with a lot of gig economy workers is, is good, clean data. And, you know, coming from an economics background, that's always the most important thing that I look for. Um, when it comes to nannies, we just don't have the clarity or the insight into it, unfortunately. And uh, that's what's required moving forward to help out these workers. To fix the gig challenge, do we need federal legislation or is it a state issue? I would imagine it would be best done at the federal level and it's uniform and it's top down. However, the current political climate probably wouldn't um, go in for that. It'd be very similar to the Works Progress Administration uh, New Deal where uh, conservatives argued for a, a, a pullback, so to speak, where originally healthcare and childcare were provisions under the, the WPA, but they were pulled back to get the act to actually pass. So the, the possibility going forward would most likely be that something would unroll at a state-by-state -state level. 
the problem there is how do you determine federal levels of taxation at a state-by-state -state level? I've written about the Works Progress Administration, gotten a huge amount of response, and I've been asked to do various webinars and things to discuss uh, whether we need one now. Do we? And tell us how the original one in the 1950s going into the 1940s worked. All right, so to set the stage, the original one was instituted in 1935 by um, President Roosevelt, and it was loosely based on programs he had rolled out when he was in New York. Um, so essentially, it was a response to the massive levels of unemployment after the Great Depression, and that was very similar to today's economic times. Uh, the 20s were called the Roaring 20s for a reason. We were hitting peak stock market levels. Uh, corporate profits were at an all-time high. Uh, as such, income inequality was in the high 30%. All these things have occurred up through February 2020, call it. Uh, unemployment at the time was, was historic lows, and uh, people were feeling generally good. They were buying, they were purchasing. Um, American households, for the first time, were taking on debt levels to purchase. Uh, in, in the numbers that we saw in the 20s. And we're seeing that now. Um, after the Great Recession, the financial crisis of, of 08 through 09, we saw that pair back a bit, but we're still at almost 80% income to debt ratios in this country. Uh, a lot of it actually affecting the gig economy because most of that is, um, you know, yeah, you got your mortgages, you have your credit card debt, but a lot of it is student loan debt as well with these gig workers. So to institute a, a WPA-like program now would be a very critical idea because it would take these, uh, what will probably be tens of millions of people out of work and actually give them W-2-like employment input into the system where they're now excluded from and it would possibly teach them a trade or a skill because the WPA was focused almost entirely on public infrastructure and works projects. The first thing, of course, the pushback will be that this is a handout, but the WPA right. was anything but a handout. It left uh, an inheritance of uh, public works projects that survive to this day. Give us some of the data now. Absolutely. Um, so about 240 million miles of roads were constructed or repaired. Uh, thousands of firehouses, for example, were, were built and repaired over 600 airports, uh, which obviously propelled travel. The commercial airline industry would not be what it is today without that. Why we saw Art Decker work at the old Washington Reagan National Terminal and LaGuardia and other airports. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of things that you see today came out of the, the WPA. Uh, one of the biggest and most um, famous would be Jackson Pollock was actually employed as a mural artist throughout the 30s. So he wouldn't be where he was without the WPA financing him throughout the Depression era. What sort um, of salaries did people get? Whether they get the minimum wage or did they get wages commensurate with their skill levels or with their advancing? Uh, abilities. So this this was very interesting. Uh, one of the one of the big pushbacks, obviously, is will people just you know take this as a handout or perceive it as a handout? And it absolutely was not because they were giving unemployment benefits already. So this level of wage would be above 
the, the handouts. However, it would be below the same job in a private situation. So the encouragement here would be to move on to a private job if you could find one. But so you wouldn't be on the government WPA tolls forever. And it wasn't just the government. There were many public-private uh, operations during under the WPA, right? Yeah, and there there was a there was a program called the Re Reconstruction Finance Program, and it actually took private monies and invested it into public works projects, where it would it was almost like a loan that was given from public uh, private monies into public projects. And the WPA would put up the salaries and wages. The state would put in uh, a big portion of the of the funding for the project, and then this public-private merger investment would carry the rest. And it was it was relatively successful throughout the depression. Where did FDR, Roosevelt, President, find the talent to run such a large government-initiated program? He employed the, uh, he had a longtime friend in Harry Hopkins who was, comes from an engineering background. Um, well, he was- About the WPA without mentioning Harry Hopkins. No, absolutely not. Um, so he had an engineering background. He was the director of all the engineering programs for the WPA. And then he was eventually bumped up to, to head it throughout um, its pivotal years. And I believe 38 through uh, 41 or 42 is when he was heading up the WPA. Um, and having that engineering talent, that engineering background, that critical thinking skills, I think really uh, propelled the organization. And of course, people were terribly keen to work. Absolutely. Instead of taking the handout, they would prefer the actual, you know, quote unquote, honorable thing of having a job uh, there was a lot of criticism of these workers as being, you know, lazy. Uh, they, a lot of people called it the worker putter administration, for example. Um, but overall, uh, you know, the impetus for the WPA was to get people off the federal handout rolls, get them into a job where they could feel good about a day's work, a 40-hour work week, a uh, 30-hour minimum, and then, you know, ideally be trained in a skill that they could carry forward. And as we know, we eventually got involved in uh, World War II. And the one benefit of the WPA is we had the employment system in place and we had the data to know where these workers needed to go when we had to ramp up production during the war. Jared, this yeah. all sounds very good, but what happens to the companies that already do public works? projects. Uh, do they get pushed aside because this new WPA wants to do it? What is, how are they integrated into the game? Uh, the integration might be more seamless than that. Uh, the, if the company exists and it's a construction company and they're already in the public works infrastructure network, uh, the WPA would essentially just pay the salaries and the wages of the workers. It wouldn't push them to the side and, and move a, a, a government instituted construction company in their place. No, it would not replace. And, and presumably increase the amount of work available to them. Absolutely. And the amount of funding. Yeah. So it could be a boon to companies that are already in this industry. Uh, as we saw from the WPA in the 30s, it was a boon to certain industries such as construction and defense. You're a fascinating man. 
wonderful conversation. Please come you. and let's talk about these things another time. That's our show for today. We will see you next week. Please, as they say, keep your social distance. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.